0: Every year, more than 600,000 Americans leave our jails and prisons. Many are on parole. Other people are put on probation instead of going to prison. The job of supervising all of them falls to parole and probation officers. Our guest did that job, and he gives us a look into that world. Welcome to the Second Chance Club on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com criminalinjustice criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice nerd and your personal guide to our dysfunctional criminal justice system and still feeling oh so lucky to have that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And before we get into the episode, we are now member-supported. We want you to become a member and supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. Go to our Patreon link at patreon.com slash That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash where you can join and get access to our extra premium content. First hundred people to join get a signed copy of my book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science, published in 2012. Here on Criminal Injustice, we've had many conversations about and with people who have served sentences in prison. Quite recently, on episode 115, we spoke with Robert Weidman, who would served 43 years of a life sentence before receiving a commutation from Pennsylvania's governor. You should check that conversation out. And we know from Other guests, particularly Ryan King of the Urban Institute, back on episode 74, that the only way we'll really cut into our prison population is if we confront our practice of handing out very long sentences in a way that no other Western industrialized country currently does. That's why we in the U.S. have 5% of the world's people, but 25% of the world's incarcerated people, well over 2 million. Of our fellow citizens. With a prison and jail population that size comes something else, too turnover. As new people go into the system, others are released. In fact, the vast majority of those incarcerated are eventually released. In any given year, our prison system releases over 600,000 people. Many of them will be on parole, released prior to the end of their sentences, but on a set of conditions they have to fulfill. No new crimes or arrest, obviously, no drug use, periodic drug testing, other things. They need to maintain an address and have a job. For other people convicted of crimes, a judge chooses sometimes to suspend any jail sentence but to put them on probation. They remain in the community instead of jail or prison but must also adhere to a strict set of rules. For all parolees and probationers, we say they are under criminal justice supervision or criminal justice control. And the job of that supervision, seeing that the parolee or probationer is not rearrested, not doing drugs and the like, falls to a person, a parole or probation officer, working for the state. For most of us who've never been on parole or probation or been a parole officer, we probably think the job is just to keep parolees on the straight and narrow and to send them back to prison if they screw up. But it's really not that simple. Here's some audio from a video created by the Missouri Department of Corrections. The woman speaking is a parole officer. She's been doing this job for 12 years, and she describes how she thought of the job when she came into it and how she thinks now The music is in the original. Take a listen. I thought it's just the way everybody else did. The guy messes up. The first time he uses drugs, he's going to prison first time he does this, we have to understand And what I got into the field. It's about not sending them back, but making them successful in the community. And so I had to learn that. When I meet with my client, I tell them, hey, and, and and I do, I honestly tell them, my goal is not to send you back to prison. My goal is not to send you to prison if you've never been. My goal is to make you successful, to help you be successful. Our guest today held that very job for four years in New Orleans, Louisiana, and he can tell us just what the mission is, what it's like in one of America's poorest communities. He's written a book about his experiences. It reports on the lives and includes the voices of the people he supervised and worked with, and it gives us a window into a world invisible to the rest of us. Jason Hardy is a former high school English teacher. He had also earned an MFA degree from Louisiana State University when, in 2011, without any clear idea of what the job would be and finding himself somewhat adrift but with a vague desire to do some kind of public service, he surprised everyone who knew him and himself by signing up as a probation and parole officer in his native New Orleans. His four years on the job are the subject of his new book, The Second Chance Club, Hardship and Hope After Prison, published by Simon & Schuster. We'll put a link to it up on our website. He now works as a special agent for the FBI. Jason Hardy, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. So. There you are. Take us back. Uh, You're feeling kind of loose ends uh, career-wise and you decide to apply for this job as a parole officer, a job you're qualified for despite having no criminal justice experience because, and I'll quote here, a bachelor's degree and a clean record were the only requirements. And you get accepted and you go through the training and then you're assigned to the New Orleans district office. Take us to that time. What exactly were you hoping to do? What did you think the job was going to be? Uh, how did you see yourself doing that public service that you wanted?
1: Well, to, to be honest with you, I didn't have a clear idea at all of what I was getting myself into. I had kind of spent my 20s just just sort of looking for my calling, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, as you mentioned, I tried teaching, worked in the service industry for years. I did retail for a while. I bounced around in grad school and I just, I just never found anything that really seemed to fit. You know, I found out who mm-hmm. could pay the bills, but I, I was looking for more. I was looking for something that I really would feel passionate about. And, uh, late 2011, early 2012, I, I kind of just fell into reading about the criminal justice system. You know, it was in the news more and more. Sure. And, uh, I, I read the new Jim Crow, which is kind of the seminal work on oh, yes. thinking, using jail to solve every social problem. And I kind of just got it into my head that this was something that, that maybe I could get involved with. And that even though I didn't have a background in it, that, you know, if good people with, with uh, you know, the right mindset came aboard that they could make a change. And at the time, there, there really weren't a lot of criminal justice jobs hiring. You know, it was kind of the heart of the recession. And right. most, uh, most, you know, cities and state agencies had really strapped budgets. Uh, and I, I looked at my, my local police department, the NOPD, and they weren't hiring. And this probation and parole job was kind of the only thing out there. And I did, you know, a little very cursory kind of Google research and and it kind of seemed to fit the bill because it was this job where on paper, at least, you were sort of determining whether or not people went back to jail. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the idea was to kind of be be kind of on the right side of this mass incarceration thing and sort of try to try to give people second chances and keep them from just kind of repeating the same cycles, it seemed like a good job to do that. And – the fact that uh, the job was really easy to get maybe should have been my my first indicator that <laughs> turnover was high and that, that the job was going to be really challenging. But, um, you know, I, I kind of just said, hey, you know, this is this sort of seemed to all come together for me and I'm going to put my name in the hat and sort of see what happens.
0: And then there you were. The next thing you know, you're walking into your office. There's your name on the door, along with your office mate and mentor, a fellow named Charles. That's what you call him in the book. Tell us some about Charles and, and, uh, how he helped you to understand the job. Uh, what surprised you about uh, the way he did it? Anything?
1: He was very candid from the jump. Really. He told me that the job was about disaster prevention and, uh, say that, that again,
0: disaster fired. prevention.
1: Yes. That was kinda of, there were a lot of different different things that people called it. But he told me pretty much right off the bat, like, look, any any illusions that you might have that you're gonna come in here and, and give somebody a, a pep talk and all of a sudden everything's gonna change, you know, you can leave that at the door. He told me that resources were limited and that even in a good year the state didn't have a lot of money, but in recession times they had even less. And that I really needed to focus myself on essentially doing what I could for the people on my caseload uh-huh. without being able to offer them much in the way of programming. Yes. And so I, obviously I wasn't really sure how to do that. And fortunately for me, Charles was, was very generous with his time, and he let me kind of ride around the city with him doing home inspections, meeting with people, and then just sitting there in the office, I kind of just watched how he worked and tried to pick up little tricks. And, um, you know, a lot of it kind of came down to how you see to a person, how you listen to a person, maybe more importantly, but the first couple of weeks, really, it was tough to kind of get over that shock of just how little the state was actually going to provide us, and how much it fell on the individual officer to try to, to do something for the folks under his care without without really any resources to do so.
0: And that is a really important point. I mean, the lack of resources. Discovering that that was a big shock, you say in the book, and you just said it again. Um, tell us what that meant for how you could or couldn't do the job. Well,
1: it didn't take me long to see it in action. My my very first day, I helped Charles arrest a woman who had come to us because she'd relapsed from her crack cocaine addiction. And it was sort of an interesting case in that not everyone, but certain people in probation and parole were expected to come in. You know every so often for a drug test and this woman was not actually due for a drug test that month but she had come in deliberately and essentially knowing she was going to fail because she wanted to get some kind of rehab and she basically knew and you know, she didn't have access to health insurance or anything like that so she knew that the only way that she could kind of get detoxed was to come in fail the drug test with us and then get put in jail
0: fail a drug and test with you and go to jail
1: Right, so she essentially needed to ask us to put her in jail and uh, detoxing in any jail is unpleasant, but uh, the Orleans Parish Jail at that time was was a, a pretty tough place. It was under a federal consent decree, and not a place where you would want to go through medical detox if you could help it. But it was really all we had at the time, and she had been in the system long enough to know. And so she kind of made this calculation that, hey, if if I want to get some kind of detox or I want to try to get clean again. This is sort of the only way to do it.
0: So jail is sort of the uh, only tool you had for her?
1: Yes. So if someone, well, it wasn't the only one. There was a quote unquote free detox in the city, but it only had about four or five beds. And so what that meant was that if you wanted to get someone in there, you needed about two weeks notice. And, you know, when people are, are, are trying to get themselves clean, they don't really have two weeks notice on that. It's like if they're ready, they're ready now. And so that, that resource was pretty much off the table. It, it was the jail or anything. And one of the things that Charles pointed out immediately that would become a recurring theme in the job is that a lot of this was supposed to come down to spending and that you know we couldn't afford rehabs and we couldn't afford um, sober living facilities. But, of course, everyone in the department knew that the jail was actually the most expensive way to deal with this stuff. Right. And so that was this kind of running conundrum is that we didn't have other options because we couldn't afford them. But the option that we could afford was is the most expensive of all.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that is really something. So you've got that one option of sending somebody to jail to to detox them or to do anything else, um, and not a whole lot else. So I mean, we know the studies tell us uh, uh, that the surest way to keep somebody from going back to prison. Is to provide him with a job and a stable place to live. Those two things count more than anything else as somebody is coming out of prison. Uh, if you don't want him to go back, could, I mean, if somebody was coming out a new parolee, could you provide those things for them?
1: No, not at all. <laughs> housing, <laughs> oh, we cool. had no, we had no referrals for housing at all. Uh-huh. Really, the only way that a homeless person could get housing was to come into contact with uh, an agency in New Orleans. that was called Unity. And it was essentially an agency that sent social workers out to homeless shelters into uh, these encampments that we had under the overpass downtown. And essentially they were kind of looking for the, the neediest of the needy. And if they determined that you fit that bill, they could sometimes get you a year-long housing voucher that that may or may not be renewed depending on sort of what your needs were. That was really the only housing option that was out there, and it it wasn't something that we could – like, we couldn't send people to Unity's office. Really, the only way that they would give out a voucher was to kind of see the homeless person in his environment and essentially make this kind of eyeball determination – that he was in, you know, the top 1% of of neediest people out there. Uh Uh, And that's, you know, I don't say that as a criticism of them, that that was sort of how they determined was the fairest way to allocate their limited resources. So there really wasn't a way for us to get homeless people in in long-term housing. Uh, We did have kind of three main homeless shelters in the city that we could send people to, but they were, you know, they were tough places to live.
0: Uh, Yeah. Shelter is never easy. That's right.
1: No, it's certainly not a long-term solution. And unfortunately, the one that most people were in, the New Orleans mission, was was really not safe and was full of drugs. And if you went in there with property, there was at least a decent chance that someone was going to take it from you. So a lot of people opted to live in an area that, that was kind of colloquial known as under the bridge, uh, and the, the bridge being the, the I-10 overpass that runs through downtown New Orleans. And so people would, you know, live under there in tents or just in sleeping bags. Uh huh. And so, you know, some people would come on on parole, and there, you know, we'd have them fill out a paper that said, you know, where do you live? And they would write under the bridge on there. That that basically meant if we wanted to see them, we were going to have to just drive around there and, and try to round them up. Wow. Um, with regard to to work, it wasn't a whole lot better. There was a city agency that was ostensibly in charge of of kind of workforce development. And uh, the folks who worked there, I think, certainly made a good faith effort, but it really wasn't designed for people who had criminal records or who had kind of severe social issues that they were going through. Uh, I think they could do a pretty good job with people who had a stable residence, had a phone, had a work history, but by and large, that was not the profile of the people we were getting. So other than a, a few kind of random exceptions where sometimes a local business would come to us and for whatever reason would say, Hey, you know, our, our boss has decided he wants to hire some people who were on probation or parole. Uh, I mean, those things would happen. They were, they were godsends, but uh-huh. they were few and far between. So for, yeah. for the most part, we'd send them to to the, the city job agency with limited or no success, um, or sometimes temp ag- temp agencies, but that was about it.
0: Uh huh. So here you are a uh, brand new to the job, uh, lucky to get a good mentor but you, you know, they they give you right away something, you know, over two hundred case files, and you've really got nothing to work with except the jail. Um, what what kind of cases were in that stack of two hundred plus? Uh, what what was the variety? It really ran the gamut.
1: It could be anything from a, a violent offense to a drug offense to a property crime. I would say that. For the, most of them, were going to be drug offenses or property crimes. Uh-huh. When you were newer, they didn't give you as many of the violent offenders. Those usually went to folks who had been around longer. But for the most part, it was going to be it was going to be drugs, burglary, uh, sometimes robbery. But you know, I, I wasn't getting people who were on for you know on parole for murder or for a sexual assault or something like that. Those would go to folks who were more specialized. I see. But uh, th- there was kind of you could almost put aside. The actual thing that the person was convicted of, and I found that sometimes it was it was beneficial to do so because more often than not, whether it was a drug offense or a burglary, it kind of all came down to the circumstances of the person's life. So, you know, drugs in poverty were kind of the recurring theme that we dealt yes. with again and again, and you know, a lot of times a burglary charge is is really an indicator of a drug problem right so, people you know, are stealing property
0: up. breaking into houses to get things in order to get their drugs
1: exactly exactly yeah so and I, I was i was surprised at how prevalent uh the drug issue was in my caseload there, there really weren't a lot of people who weren't touched by it in some way
0: yeah, and that those two themes really do stand out across almost everybody that you had and talked about in the book. They either had drug addictions uh, or they were using drugs to kind of self-medicate against mental illness of one or another type, some severe, some not. Uh, or they were, as you say, addicted to the drug lifestyle of selling drugs and making easy money. So it was there almost all the time, it seemed to me.
1: It was. Uh, I, I really was surprised by that. I, I thought it would be kind of a, a wider gamut. And, and, you know, going back to the question of poverty, I, I certainly expected that my caseload would be concentrated among people who were poor, but it was pretty much only people who were poor. I, I don't know that i Supervise a single person who you would consider middle class now some of the drug dealers would have kind of fast money you know and they Uh would would have money for a time but as far as sustainable money I really didn't I really didn't run into many people who had that
0: yeah almost everybody was poor and let's pull out another thing that I think is important here in your caseload almost all the people you served all the people you supervised were african-american mostly men and you're not uh african American you're white. Uh, how much of an issue was that? Did it make this more difficult? Were there issues uh regarding that?
1: I wouldn't say necessarily that, that almost all uh certainly it was predominantly african american it, it manifested itself in a number of ways i, I certainly my office made total african american and I certainly noticed that there would be conversations about Shared experiences across racial lines that, that you know, I frankly weren't my experiences. And so I think in that respect, being the same race as someone that you supervise could be an advantage, just because you know there were things that, that you could relate to that person, a person of a different race maybe couldn't. Having said that, I really found that just about everybody I was supervising gave me a shot. You know, whatever their preconceived notions might be of a, you know, a white guy in law enforcement,
0: yeah, I really
1: didn't find that that people were not willing to give me a chance to to show that that I wanted to help. Now it didn't always mean that I could, but um, that that was that was really kind of a kind of a humbling thing to see that that you know even these folks who in many cases had not been treated very equitably by the system I was working in, still were willing to believe that you know I, I was there to help them out. And, and so again, I think that I think that being the, the, the having as much in common as you can with the people you're supervising is an advantage just because you can you can relate in a different way but um having said that i really felt like most of the, the people i was dealing with they just they just wanted help from somebody you know and they, they weren't you know if i could they weren't provide particular
0: it, if you could give it yes
1: yeah then that was all they needed to know
0: yeah and it's that provision of help uh where they were and the listening that i really think stands out as what can uh, help to make uh, an interaction and a supervision successful, measured as, you know, in very limited ways because of the very limited resources there were. And, and you know, what one of the things that I learned, and I think a lot of people would from reading the book, I think a lot of people thinking about parole and probation officers think of them sitting in an office and people coming to them, reporting to them, you must come and report and so forth but the vast majority of what you talk about are field visits. It's field work. You're going out to the field. You're going out to visit parolees' homes. Talk about why that's important and what you're doing when you're out in the field.
1: The ultimate goal of successful community supervision is to kind of lean into the community side of it. So what that means is as the officer, you're reporting to a, a higher authority, so either a judge in the case of probation or the parole board in the case of a parolee. And so what you're really supposed to be doing is is telling that authority what this person's life is like and what, in your opinion, is the best way to help that person succeed. And so if all that person is doing is coming to your office, you know, peeing in a cup and, and signing a paper, you're just not going to be able to do your job. And, and the one thing I, I really credit my agency with is that emphasis on field work. And, and you know, all, all of our bosses would say, "You can't do this job from your desk. You have to be out there in the community. You have to be talking to people, and you have to be seeing where they live and how they live." And even even when we were the most cash-strapped and had the fewest resources, one of the the great services that we could provide is if you could go into a house and kind of observe the environment, sort of see. What the triggers were, you know, is this person having issues with folks, uh-huh. Is he having issues with the neighborhood? Then you can take that information back to that decision maker, whether it's a judge or a parole board, and you can help them make a better decision. And you know, we saw this, especially with the higher risk cases, where we got to know them better and we spent more time with them. A lot of times, we could bring something to court that a judge just hadn't thought of or or hadn't known. And, and even you know, even a good defense attorney essentially knows this person from sitting in, in an office with them. You know, they don't go to the house. So mm-hmm. that was where I really, you know, where, where the job really felt the most like it was contributing something was if there was going to be a matter in court or if the judge is deciding whether to you know, to grant someone leniency or, in other cases, to sort of look at them, I could go in there and say, you know, Your Honor, this is what I'm seeing in the house. This is kind of what the family life is like. These are the issues this person has has told me he's dealing with. And more often than not, that would give the judge more to work with. And, you know, simply being able to have a more, you know, a fuller deck of cards, just, just more information when you're deciding how to help somebody through this process is, is really invaluable. And I, I think that that's, that's where probation and parole really shine is in that kind of going out into the community and really getting to know people aspect.
0: Let's take a quick break here. This is Criminal Injustice, and we're talking with Jason Hardy about his time as a parole and probation officer in New Orleans, all of which is in his new book, The Second Chance Club. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute.
1: Hi, my name is Nancy, and I'm calling from Connecticut. This is Tricia calling from Baltimore. Eric from... Kingston, New York. I'm from D.C. Orange, Virginia. Sunny Dayton, Ohio. Coming from
0: Long Island. St. Paul, Minnesota. Los
1: Angeles, California. Kahului, Hawaii.
0: Christchurch, New Zealand. Sacramento, Philadelphia. Iowa City, Iowa. And I was calling to ask you a question. question for you. I had a question about Miranda. I had a question about something I heard on the news. I've been wondering. I'm just wondering. I just, just wondering. I was wondering, and I was just curious. I am curious. The question I have for you is what I want to know. I is want to know. I want to
1: hear more about. It. I would like for you to. Please explain. I'm hoping you can help me uh,
0: understand. What
1: are the laws about that? I thought I'd ask
0: the expert. Got a question? Better call Dave. Call 412-407-3389 and ask Dave. That's 412-407-3389. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe home security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night, ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech-savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then SimpliSafe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24-7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with SimpliSafe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs right now my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a simply safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. you also get a 60day risk-free trial so there's nothing to lose. visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. that's simply safe S-I-M-P-L-I. S-A-F-E, that's simplysafecom slash injustice. Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. And my guest today is Jason Hardy. He's the author of a new book, The Second Chance Club, Hardship and Hope After Prison. It's about his time as a parole and probation officer in New Orleans. Before the break, we were talking about fieldwork and its importance for how well you could do your job, how you could look people in the eye, out in their own environment, see what was really going on in the home, and to bring that information back to decision makers like judges who could then set things up so that there was a better chance that these people could succeed. And, you know, that really came home to me uh, in a couple of the stories of the people you supervised. Tell us about Kendrick. Kendrick was a person who was trying hard but had some mental health issues.
1: Yes, Kendrick was someone who had been exposed to violence and trauma from a really early age, he, had, he was a mother who who was abusive. Uh, she, was, she had been abused herself. His father was a drug dealer and gang member who was shot dead in front of Kendrick when Kendrick was 11 or 12. And he grew up in a, in a really rough neighborhood. Uh, he lived mostly in the lower 94, which most people are familiar with. It's, it's one of the poorer neighborhoods in New Orleans, and it's one that's just struggled with violence for a long time. And he... By the time he came to me, he was in his thirties. He had several convictions. He was on for a burglary, but it was you know, it was really a burglary uh as a means to getting a fix for a drug addiction. And he just he had kind of a, a full slate of problems. You know, he he was functionally homeless. He suffered from some mental health issues that I kind of came to understand better as I went and, and again he was fighting addiction. But the main thing that we really kind of tried to triage with him was the mental health issue, because as far as we could tell, it had never really been addressed at all. And he had his Department of Corrections record had had some kind of notes in it that indicated that maybe he talked to a psychologist during one of his stints in prison, but nothing substantive. The way he described the issue to me, you know, he called it clicking out. And essentially what he would tell me is that he would just um, would just kind of, you know, be going about his business and some kind of minor thing would happen to him and he would just kind of kind of lose his cool and frequently the result of that would be an act of violence and, and he had a, a pretty extensive violent history even though the offense he was on for at the time was not so it seemed like something that you know it could benefit him if he could get treatment but it was also a benefit to the public because obviously
0: right, he posed you know, a danger he was,
1: telling me was Right, he's telling me, look, I'm I'm kind of a danger to people out there, and there's there's got to be something that we can do, you know. And as a as a PO, that's really kind of a, the moment that you move forward because you you feel like, okay, you know, whether <laughs> whether because I did something right or just because this person's desperate, he's coming to me, he's telling me the truth, he's asking for help. Right. And so then it's like, okay, well, what do you do? And he was on parole, and so parole information have different, I mean, they're both limited resources, but at the time, there there was a little more available for mental health uh, with probation, and so uh, one of the things that they could do is the courthouse could screen you for, say, screen is probably the wrong word, they would do these kind of cursory cursory mental health evaluations, and sometimes through that process, you, you could ultimately get referred to a real doctor and get a real diagnosis, Right. and so I kind of started out trying to do that with Kendrick, and it ended up that the interaction with him and the screener kind of went off the rails and he was kind of alarmed by what he had to say. And ultimately (laughs) what we found out was that really the only way that we were going to be able to get him diagnosed with a mental health issue and ultimately treated was to do it through the department of corrections. And so what that meant was that none of the resources that were available on the ground in the city, we're going to be able to meet his needs. And at the time there was a public mental health clinic that was known as metropolitan, but the only way that you could get services there was if you had essentially all your paperwork in order. And and what that now is that you you had to have a written diagnosis,
0: a written diagnosis from from a medical professional, right?
1: Exactly. And so if there's someone like Kendrick who is homeless, uh, who doesn't have access to a phone, uh, who has an eighth grade education and doesn't read and write very well, you know, you, the, the chances that you're going to have kind of all your paperwork in order and kind of know, know what to say when you kind of get your appointment with a mental health professional are not great. So ultimately, after consulting with my boss and his boss and people above us, the only fix you could come up with was to send him back to one of the correctional facilities in the state that had this kind of new mental health wing.
0: So uh, into prison to get mental health treatment.
1: Exactly. So we were kind of faced with this with, with a pretty terrible choice, which is do nothing, let him hurt himself, hurt somebody else and end up back in prison potentially for a violent crime or send him back to prison short term in the hope that he can get a diagnosis and that we can use that diagnosis to get him treatment in the community. So that, that was in many ways a microcosm of the job is you sort of have two bad options and you're trying to figure out which one will do the least harm and and potentially do the most good. Right. We felt like we kind of exhausted our options to do this the right way, which would be to get him treatment in the community. And so the only way we could really do it was back to the Department of Corrections. And like the woman I mentioned earlier who who essentially volunteered to go to jail after a relapse, uh, Kendrick had been in the system a while and he was more or less okay with this. You know, we kind of pitched it to him as look, you need help. We want to help you. This is this is the only thing that we can come up with. What do you think? And uh, he he said, "Hey, whatever it takes. You know, um, I, I just want to get this taken care of."
0: Willing if to I'm go to enough, prison.
1: Willing, willing to go back to prison. Yes. Yeah. If this uh, no, is not, the only way you I'm can get help. Back. Mm-hmm. But that that was as far as any of us could come up with. That that was really our only option. And so it was both kind of a a low moment. Uh, I think I'd been on the job about a year when that happened. And it was also a moment where I kind of felt like, you know, this is the job. And if if I want to do this job, these are the sort of solutions that, that you have to be able to work with. You know um, you can't, if you hold out for a perfect solution, you're not going to be able to help anybody. it, It was kind of a, it was kind of a key moment for me where I, you know, I continue to kind of grow over that first year, but I ultimately accepted, okay, I'm working in a system that is deeply flawed. Um, you know, the, the the answers that I want are not here. So, I can either leave or I can try to, try to be somehow a force for good in, in the system that we have. And so, you know, I, I thought I'd, I'd stick it out and, and sort of see what I could do. And... You know, there was a lot more to the story of Kendrick, but at least in that moment, yes. uh, we were successful in getting him the diagnosis and in, in getting him the appointment, you know, back at the clinic here in uh, in the city.
0: Right. And it, it took all of that work around uh, going into the prison system, everything else, to get a person mental health treatment who needed it and wanted it and recognized his own n- need for it and came to you for it. That is... You know, we've set our systems up in ways that uh, almost beg people to fail. And it's your well, job to kind of work around those things.
1: Right. And I, even though I'd been on the job a year by then, I I, I do remember that as a moment when it, it just was sort of almost hard to do the math. It, it's like everyone within this system knows that a certain percentage of, of folks who get out of prison are going to be homeless. They're going to have mental health problems. They're going to have drug problems. You know, we can't be the first generation of probation and parole officers who said, hey, it might be both cheaper and more effective to actually have treatment for these these individuals and to keep sending them back. But it, it was, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it, it was sort of like everybody everybody who'd been there for years said, yeah, we keep saying it, but it just things just kind of stay the same you know yeah. so it was certainly not a, a new observation by me but it just seemed like uh i don't know it was almost like whoever was making the decisions hadn't hadn't really thought about other ways to deal with it
0: yeah um you know so often i think uh when we uh hear about um about people in these uh, sorts of circumstances uh and we hear that they're on parole or probation we picture, we civilians we have not, who have not been in the system, we think, well, the people screw up. They got to be sent back to prison. And it's so striking from almost the beginning pages of the book, you find out that's not really the job at all. And you didn't want to participate in something like that anyway. You came in to sort of help stem mass incarceration, but you found that everybody was looking for ways to keep people out Because, you know, so much of what we hear about uh, with overstuffed prisons is that people are violated for petty stuff. And I see you and Charles and Lamar and Beth and, you know, your fellow officers all basically willing to overlook a lot to keep people out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that that was (laughs) that was pretty true. I mean, certainly, look, we had some people who were more by the book than others. and one of the things that, you know, we had this big lunchroom where we would kind of sit around and talk or and a complain about the job. And I think all of us, you know, had a little bit of a, a pendulum to our, our kind of practical ideology, you know, and sometimes you would, I know, I would sometimes think like, Hey, there've been times in my life when I needed a break. And there've been times in my life when I, I needed somebody to, to be hard on me a little bit. And I, I think, you know, within each person, there were cases where, we might have swung more one way or another, but in general, yes, most people felt like, hey, almost everybody here has, has been to jail before. It hasn't fixed the problem, and we're here to try to to fix the problem a different way. And that that took a lot of different a lot of different shapes and forms. But I would say that 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 was pretty much universally true. That the people that I worked with were trying to find solutions other than putting people in prison. And then kind of coming back over and over again to the fact that the prison was sort of the only tool that that we were given.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it is one of the really striking features of the whole book. When you realize that that everybody is trying to pull in the same direction, uh, because if you read about the experience of other states, their prisons are filled with people who, you know, had one dirty urine and a drug test, something like that. And that is not what you read about here at all. You know, I wanted to ask you about a, uh, another kind of thing. Uh, you make a choice in the book, I noticed, that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you refer to people as offenders. And, um, you know, in some other contexts um, that uh, I've come across, uh, both here on the podcast and elsewhere, uh, other people use different terminology, um, uh, if I go back to uh, episode 29, we interviewed a guy who's a longtime friend of mine, Wayne McKenzie, who's the general counsel for NYC probation. And uh, he and his agency made a switch, and they talk, to, they talk about their, their probationers as clients. Um, I've interviewed uh, formerly incarcerated people, and they, are, they really want to be discussed not as inmates or convicts, but, as incarcerated people or formerly incarcerated people, did you make a conscious choice about using the term offender or was it just the, like the vocabulary that was used on the job
1: you know a, a couple of other folks who've read the book have have asked me about this or have pointed it out, and I think it's a it 's a really interesting thing to think about I, I did make a conscious choice to to use it, and really, <laughs> the reason was just that it, it was kind of the the shorthand that I was seeing the most in the reading I was doing. So, you know, the construction of this book was initially my own experiences. And then I kind of went back and looked for some statistics and some sort of just tried to ground what I was talking about a little more in in kind of the latest research. Uh And it kind of seemed, you know, at the time, which was not very long ago, like that was sort of the the term that was generally in use for people who were on probation and parole. And I, I think really just because saying probationers and parolees over and over again is just kind of cumbersome. Yeah, that's a lot. And, and so I, you know, I kind of just like, all right, well, this is sort of what the criminologists say. Um, you know, I don't really remember. It, it was definitely the umbrella term that we used it at the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously we didn't address anyone as an offender. Um, but I, I really think that Moving to something like client makes a lot of sense. I don't think it, it costs us anything. And, uh, you know, frankly, I I, I wish I would thought a little more critically about it. I, I really was just thinking of it in terms of this is sort of the term of art that seems to be in use now. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't perceive it as a value judgment. Uh-huh. But I think it's really useful to hear from folks who are on probation and parole who are saying, hey, even if you don't call me that, even if it's not written down anywhere, it, it's... It, it feels like a value judgment, mm-hmm. and I really, I really think it's it's worth taking that to heart. Um, it's interesting though, you know, with with regard to the word client, I, I remember this coming up sometimes in conversation. For example, with a lot of the treatments that we would send people to, like day reporting centers or, or drug courts and then health court, courts, people in probation and parole there would be referred to as client. And we, we talked about this at the office some, and I I think the resistance to client is really kind of a, a practical one in that the, the probation and parole Eve to PO relationship is at the end of the day, there is kind of a, an, an authority to it. And so, you know, I guess a client is someone that is, you know, you're rendering a service for. And I think that maybe there's some concern that calling the people on your caseload clients, could be almost disorienting, you know, if you do have to take some kind of an enforcement action right, but having said that I, I don't know i don't I don't know what's better. I certainly don't think it costs us anything to to get rid of offender um you know i'm I don't know that I, I don't know that I've heard the perfect term, but I certainly think using a term that is problematic just because it's an easy shorthand is not the answer so, yeah, it's interesting, I, I certainly think getting away from offender makes sense,
0: yeah. Um, You know, I I can't resist asking you about one uh, of your other people under supervision, Sheila. She was your uh, youngest person on your list when you first got her case. She was only 18. Um, sure. And she got her major charge because uh, when the police raided her boyfriend's place, uh, she flushed the drugs down the toilet. And so right. she got a felony for that. She was under your supervision, and you did manage to get her into some counseling settings, set her on the path to a reasonable job. What ultimately happened with sheila was where what was her life improved in some way?
1: I really think it was she was she was another person who ultimately was able to or was willing to kind of confide in me that she you know, she presented kind of in the initial visits as very kind of kind of bubbly and full of life and just charismatic and just, you know, kind of a, a prankster type of person. But over time I found out that she was really struggling with depression and that she was she was self medicating with weed, you know, and not like once a week, but like four or five times all a day. The time, yeah. So she was kind of spending spending all of her time um high and it obviously it wasn't helping, you know, the, the problem kind of continued to escalate. And we were able to get her into what was called uh, – they just called it mental health court. And this is a program that's kind of based on the drug court model. Uh-huh. And essentially what, what, what it does is it kind of – this is why POs like it, I think, is that it kind of takes some of the burden to be a treatment counselor off the PO because uh, few of us were, were, were trained for that or qualified to do it. And it puts this person in contact with uh, you know, clinical psychologists, social workers, we had counselors, you know, you, you actually really get a team when you're in one of these programs. And so she was able over the course of a couple of weeks to get into some talk therapy and actually even get some medication uh, to deal with her mental health issues. And that was something that we really couldn't have gotten to her any other way. Uh, so I, I really, that program to me was a godsend. Yeah. And one that I really kind of advocated for. Uh, for other people who had similar issues. But uh, you had to be on probation to get it. So for parolee, there really wasn't anything like that. It, it was strictly for probationers.
0: I see. You do make the case uh, at, the, at the end of the book for various ways in which the system could be improved. One of them is greater access to so-called treatment courts of all kinds because of that team aspect of things. Uh, another recommendation you make that I wanted to give you a chance to talk about, uh, would be cutting back the standard sort of supervised period when somebody is released or on probation. It's usually five years, but you think two years is all that is necessary to see if it's going to work or not. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I, I, you know, and I know uh, yeah, that seems like kind of an arbitrary number, and and I'm reluctant to say that it's the right number for everybody. But I think I think for most people, certainly most of the people that I dealt with, Two years was about it was about enough time to see whether or not you were gonna be able to help. And it was also enough time to see whether or not the person was gonna present a threat to public safety and need to be dealt with, you know, in another fashion. I think in a perfect world we could offer people as much supervision as they want or need, but given limited resources the idea of, of kind of compressing this into kind of kind of comparing two years of real supervision with real resources, real help, real job referrals, real rehab if people want it, versus five years of this kind of half-assed, like, you know, checking on you every couple of months right. and called supervision. Um, you know, not that it's a totally binary choice, but I, I think, you know, given unlimited resources, you know, you, you could really kind of tailor each, each supervision to each individual and determine what's an appropriate length of time. But that's not the world we live in. And I, I just think if you rolled back in many places from five years to two, those two years could really be a good trial run. They could really give this person a chance to get back on his feet. Whereas for, for so many people, you know, the, the, the five years of supervision is really in name only. You know, really all they're getting in that five years is the potential to go back to jail. They're, they're not getting any opportunity for rehabilitation.
0: Right. A lot of other recommendations in the book. I think people will enjoy the book a lot. Uh, Congratulations on it. And it was great to get a chance to look into a world that is basically invisible to the rest of us.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. I really
0: enjoyed speaking with you. Sure. That is Jason Hardy, our guest. He has uh, written a good new book about his years as a parole and probation officer in New Orleans. It's called The Second Chance Club. Hardship and Hope After Prison, published by Simon and Schuster, we'll put a link to it up on our website. Thanks a lot for being my guest on Criminal Injustice.
1: Thanks again for having me.
0: Stay with us for another episode of Lawyers Behaving Badly. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Department. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from NBC5 Television and WGN9 Television, both in Chicago and the ABA Journal News Online, concerns Cook County Judge Jackie Portman Brown. With the possible exception of Florida, which, as we know, is an entire state. Probably no jurisdiction contributes more to the annals of judges behaving badly on criminal injustice than Cook County, Illinois, where I'm from. It's hard not to feel a bizarre sense of pride in the uh, consistency of our judges. This is a developing story, but so weird that we bring it to you and we'll report on it again as it develops. It begins with the public release of a video, recently from Judge Portman Brown's courtroom and from areas in the back of the courtroom, the non-public side of the show. From the door to Judge Portman's courtroom, the public door, we see two adult women entering the judge's courtroom, accompanied by a small girl. The child appears to be six or seven years old. In the next segment of video, we see that the child is walking between the two women in the non-public area in the back of the courtroom. They are working their way around a desk in some kind of office area. And then next, we see an adult female person. It appears to be Judge Portman Brown in her robe, forcing this small girl into a holding cell in the back of her courtroom. The child is then seen inside the locked cell with one of the courtroom deputies outside the cell talking to her. The next segment of video shows the girl and the two women she came with leaving Judge Portman Brown's courtroom from the public door. The girl had apparently been behind bars in the holding cell for about 10 minutes. Now, what exactly happened in that courtroom to lead a sitting judge to push a small child into a cell and have the door locked on her with the child inside is still unclear as I record this. But let's just say for the record that when a person is taken into custody in a courtroom, it is the courtroom deputies who put the person in handcuffs and walk the person into the cell, not the judge. And let's also say... This wouldn't, shouldn't, should never be happening to a six-year-old. Sources told WGN television that Judge Portman Brown told the courtroom deputies to lock the child up. The deputies refused, and when they did, Judge Portman Brown did it herself. As of now, Judge Portman Brown has been reassigned to administrative duties pending a hearing on her conduct reassigned, one hopes, to a job where she can't harm any children with this kind of behavior. And perhaps they can assign her some common sense while they're at it. We'll keep our eyes on this one, and we will report back to you. That is lawyers behaving badly, Judicial Department. And that's it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Remember to subscribe to Criminal Injustice so you can always get us in your favorite podcast app every single time and never miss an interview or our news bonuses or another story of lawyers behaving badly. Remember, we're now listener-supported, so please go to patreon.com slash criminal injustice. I am David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rawlerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.